We've been doing a series on the book of Ephesians, and several years before writing the letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul met with the elders of that church. He was wrapping up his third missionary journey, and he was heading back to Jerusalem, where he knew that persecution was awaiting him. And over in Acts chapter 20, we have one of the most emotional moments in all of the New Testament. Paul charges the elders of Ephesus to pay close attention to themselves and also to their flock that God had entrusted to them. Then Paul kneels down and he prays with the church. Luke says that there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul. They kissed him. They were sorrowful, most of all, Luke said, because of the word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again. Now, Paul loved this church. He loved the church of Ephesus. And the church loved Paul. And one of the main ways that they expressed that love for one another was through prayer. Now, we recently began a study through the letter of Ephesians, and one of the most prominent themes that we're going to see, we've seen it already a little bit, we're going to continue to see it, is this theme of prayer. Paul's prayer for the church and the church's prayer for Paul. Paul opened in his greeting in the form of a prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. After discussing the blessings of redemption in the church in one of the longest sentences in all of ancient Greek, we have a prayer that Paul shares for his people in chapter 115. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Over in chapter 3, Paul prays on behalf of the church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father that he might grant you to be strengthened with power to know the love of Christ. And then, of course, you remember over in Ephesians chapter 6, no doubt you've heard Paul's teaching on spiritual warfare, the importance of putting on the full armor of God. But remember, after he talks about that helmet of salvation, that sword of the Spirit, that shield of faith, that he concludes that section on warfare by saying, to pray at all times in the Spirit. He says, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication or begging on behalf of the saints, and also, he says, for me. The Apostle Paul, who knew the Scriptures perhaps better than anybody else at that time, The Apostle Paul, who had personally been called by Jesus Christ and had been anointed with great power by the Holy Spirit and capable of performing signs and wonders, the Apostle Paul asks for the Ephesian church to pray for him. And if he needed prayer, how much more we need prayer as well. I think every one of us here this morning would agree that prayer is important. Although many of us would probably be quick to add, we don't pray as much as we ought. We don't pray as fervently as we ought. Most Christians, I think, would recognize that prayer is important, and yet it's an area that we need to grow. Today, I want to focus, though, on one specific kind of prayer, corporate prayer. And my hope would be that this would change how we view prayer, and perhaps even the way we do our ministry as a church. We're going to focus in on corporate prayer. That is prayer where the people of God gather and they pray together. 
the praying of God's saints together. When I talk about corporate prayer, I'm not simply talking about a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Although a church might choose to pray on Wednesday nights, and this might be a very good idea. But there's nothing in Scripture that specifically commands a church to pray on Wednesday nights from 6 to 7 p.m. The church is, however, commanded to pray. And to pray regularly, and to pray consistently, and to pray fervently, and to pray corporately. To be quite honest, this is an area that I want to grow in my leadership over our church, and this is an area that I think all of you can help me to grow as a church, that we want to grow in being a praying church. And so we're going to consider two blessings of being a praying church this morning, two blessings of being a praying church, or blessings of corporate prayer. First of all, we notice in Scripture, throughout the New Testament, that corporate prayer imitates the early church. Why should we pray corporately? And what benefit is there in praying corporately? And and first of all, the answer is simply that we are imitating the early church when we gather to pray. We are imitating what Paul was doing with the elders of Ephesus there along the shore of Miletus. We are doing what Paul described that he was doing in the letter to the Ephesian church. We are doing what we see consistently over and over again in the book of Acts, that when the people of God gathered, they prayed. And so prayer should be an important element of our worship and our fellowship together. The first century, that is, uh, the first century church that is described for us in the book of Acts provi- provides many examples of how Christians ought to live. After all, the early church was led by the apostles themselves. So if we want to know what Christ's will was and what the instructions of the apostles were in the early days, we can look to the book of Acts to see how God wants his people to live and conduct themselves. Furthermore, the early church was closely related to the time when Jesus had physically walked upon the earth. When we read those early accounts in the book of Acts, we are only days, weeks, months separated from the time that Jesus was present upon the earth. And I I think that the, the aftermath and the aftershocks of Christ's presence are still felt as you're reading through the book of Acts. In addition to that, we see the Holy Spirit poured out in an unprecedented way upon the early church. Not to say The Spirit hasn't done that at other times throughout church history, or that He cannot do that again. But we see the Holy Spirit working in profound ways in the early church. And for all these reasons, because we're so close to the ministry of Christ, and we have the actual apostles of Jesus present leading the church, and we have the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, when we look at the book of Acts, we are seeing in many cases instructions for how God wants the church to conduct itself. Now, we have to be careful to decipher or to discern between what is description and what is prescription. What do I mean by that? Well, anytime you're in narrative in Scripture, you're reading a description or a historical account of events that took place. And not all things that are described for us are prescribed for us. That is, they are not all a written prescription that God says we are supposed to be doing exactly the same things that the early church was doing or that the prophets were doing or that Old Testament Israel was doing. When we're reading historical narrative, we do have to decipher what is being described and what is being prescribed. But when we compare the behavior of the early church with the instructions given by Jesus in the Gospels, 
and the apostles and the epistles or the letters, we see a consistent testimony that the church was praying and that they were supposed to be praying and that God was glorified when they gathered and they prayed together. So I would submit to you that corporate prayer is both described and prescribed. And as we look at several examples in the book of Acts, we are seeing what God wants Crossview Bible Church to be doing. And every other local Bible-believing, gospel-centered church to be doing, he wants us to pray. When the, the apostles were gathered in Jerusalem... They were waiting for something in Acts chapter 1. You remember that the book of Acts begins with Jesus ascending back into heaven after spending 40 days after his resurrection, revealing himself to his disciples, giving the great commission to them. Paul says that he showed many convincing proofs of the fact that he was alive and risen from the dead. And he said, stay here in this city and wait until the gift that my father is going to send to you. Of course, we know that that gift was the Holy Spirit. As we saw last week in Ephesians, that Holy Spirit is the very seal and the sign and the down payment of our full redemption. But what were the disciples doing? What were the apostles doing as they were waiting in Jerusalem? They didn't go to Blockbuster Video and just check out a bunch of videos and wait around watching movies or streaming what was latest on Netflix. And obviously, they didn't even have those options back then. But what were they doing? They didn't go fishing. They didn't go camping. They didn't just simply go on a nice leisurely walk. They were praying. They were praying and waiting for God to work and to move. Acts chapter 1, verse 14, all of these with one accord. In other words, there was church unity. With one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Can you imagine the scene? Here we are some six weeks after the resurrection from Jesus, and all of the disciples are gathered together in unity and anticipation that God is about to work in a mighty way. And it says that they are gathered together praying. And when you look at this scene, you have the apostles of Jesus Christ, and next to them is the mother of Jesus, Mary herself. And in addition, we have, it says here, the brothers of Jesus. Now, if you've read through the Gospels, you're aware of the fact that during Christ's earthly ministry, his brothers did not believe in him. He had a brother named James. He had a brother named Judas. There were other brothers as well. And these brothers did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah during his earthly life and ministry. But apparently, after the resurrection, these brothers recognized that their brother, or at least their half-brother through their mom Mary, that this was none other than the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And so those brothers are now present in this prayer meeting as the early church gathers. Now, technically, I would say this is not even the church yet. I would, I would suggest that the church does not officially begin until Acts chapter 2. And I consider Pentecost to be the birthday of the church. But here we have the saints uh, of all those that had been there with Jesus, those that have been gathered together, and they are worshiping Jesus, and they are worshiping him, how? By praying together. What a glorious picture that this is and an encouragement for what God wants us to do as well. 
Well, as we go on further in chapter 1, when it came time to decide who would replace Judas as the 12th apostle, because after all, Jesus had referred to them oftentimes as the 12, and it wouldn't make a lot of sense if now the 12 turned into the 11. There was something significant about there being 12 in wholeness and completion, and so they recognized we have a vacancy. We have an absence that needs to be filled, and how are we going to fill who that 12th person is? And the Bible says that they narrowed it down to two candidates named Justice and Matthias, and they prayed. They prayed. They prayed for wisdom. They prayed for guidance. They prayed for direction. They prayed for God's will. They prayed for God's Man, And I think that both of these men were very well qualified to be narrowed down, but they wanted God's man to fill this roster, and so they prayed. As we go on in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is sent down in mighty fashion. We've been talking about and considering the work of the Holy Spirit, again, as the sign and the seal of our redemption. Peter, of course, preaches the gospel on Pentecost Sunday And in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says that the listeners received the word and were baptized. You see, after they received the gospel, then they were baptized. First comes salvation, then comes baptism. First comes faith, then comes baptism. Baptism does not save you. Baptism is a symbol of what Christ has already done in your heart and in your life. Baptism is for those who have already been regenerated. And so we have this description of those who received the word, were baptized, and they were added that day to the church about 3,000 souls. That, my friends, is revival. That's what we pray for in our community today, in our church, in our country, around the world. We pray for God to work and to move mightily and supernaturally. But 3,000 people were saved on a single day on a single Sunday as they gathered to hear the preached word of God. And then listen, it says that after they joined the church, having been baptized, they devoted themselves to four things. And this is our key text for this morning, okay? I want to point your attention to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I want you to see it with your own eyes. What does it say that the early church was doing? What were they occupying their time with? In Acts 2, 42, it says, they devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Okay, four things. The apostles' teaching fellowship or koinonia is the greek word it's the idea of oneness gathering together practicing in the one another's breaking bread and prayers essentially we try to replicate our sunday corporate worship services after what we see the early church doing are we devoting ourselves this morning to the apostles teaching you better believe it because the apostles teaching is christ teaching The Great Commission, Jesus said to his apostles, go and make disciples and teach them all I have commanded you. And he said, not just to know what I commanded you, but teach them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. So when we open up this book of God's word and we study it together, we are devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. I had a friend years ago, and he would say, when we would be reading through sections of Acts or the epistles, he would say, well, that's not in red letters, That's not in red letters, so that's not equal in weight and authority with the words of Christ. Friends, 
all of Scripture could be in red letters because all of it came from God himself. Okay, so Jesus' words, of course they're significant, and I find it helpful to be able to glance down on the page and see where Jesus is talking as opposed to when somebody else is talking, but anything in the book of Scripture is inspired and breathed out by God, and all of what comes after the Gospels in Scripture, from Acts all the way to Revelation, that's the apostles' teaching. That's what the early church was devoting itself to. That's what Christ had commanded them to do and what we are supposed to devote ourselves to as well. So apostles' teaching is to be a primary focus of church life and ministry. Secondly, fellowship. There's the sharing together of the body of Christ. This is why it's so difficult to have an online service. And I love those of you who are watching online, but I want you to know how much we miss you when you can't be here present with us physically. It's very difficult to fellowship over the internet. It's very difficult to have koinonia, oneness, to partake of the bread and the cup together, to love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, confess our sins toward one another. I mean, you can go on and on and on of all the different times that body life is described in the New Testament, and it uses this language, one another, one another, one another. That's fellowship, friends. Fellowship is not simply a potluck. It could be that, but it's talking about sharing in life together, fellowshipping and celebrating our union with Christ together. That's what the early church was doing. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Thirdly, the breaking of bread. Of course, we have done that this morning. We have literally broken the bread representing the broken body of Jesus Christ. We have drank of the cup representing the spilt blood of Jesus Christ. We take the Lord's Supper and we are joining ourselves in good company to all the saints over all the centuries straight back to the early church. And when Jesus did this in the upper room with his disciples, he set a precedent for what he wanted the church of all ages and generations to do. And that is to remember him until he comes. They broke bread. We break bread. But then lastly, we see in this verse that they what? They prayed. They prayed. They devoted themselves to prayer, right? As we move on, we see a number of other examples, but let me just give you one. In Acts chapter 6, when the church was handing out food to widows, and it was discovered that the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked, the apostles called what we could say was an all-church business meeting. It says all the disciples were assembled together, and the apostles talked with them about, okay, we've got a problem. What are we going to do about it? Here is a solution. We want you to carry out the solution. We want to identify seven men, men who all end up having Greek names. This is very wise of the apostles and the early church to identify people that would represent these Greek-speaking widows. Identify seven men who fulfill certain character qualifications and appoint them to the task of dispensing of the food. We've got widows. They're needy. They need our help. Appoint some people. Delegate some people to be in charge of carrying them so that the apostles and the elders could do what? Devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. And then it says, after the church identified and selected these seven men that they set them before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. You see, these early Christians did not just pray. They prayed corporately. 
And I think that you would be hard-pressed to find in any ministry or any worship service or any early church activity where prayer was not a major component. Warren Wearsby says it so well. The early church had none of the advantages that some ministries boast of and depend on today. They did not have big budgets provided by wealthy donors. Their pastors lacked credentials from the accepted schools, nor did they have the endorsement of the influential political leaders of that day. Most of their ministries had jail records and would probably have a hard time today joining our churches, let alone leading them. What really was the secret of their success? The Christians and the early church knew how to pray so that God's hand could work in mighty power. They knew how to pray. They knew how to pray, and that far outweighed any education and any budgets and any programs. They prayed, and God listened, and he answered those prayers. I wonder, does prayer occupy a similar place of preeminence in our church today? Does prayer receive the seat of honor in our worship services? Or is it a quiet stranger that is drowned out by noisy activities? If a complete stranger were to walk into church this morning and decide to just tag along and watch every aspect of our ministry for a whole week just to see who we are and what we do, would they come away with a sense that this is a church that believes in the power of prayer? I hope they would. I think that there's some reasons that they would, but I can say this, friends. We've got a ways to go still. We've got room for improvement, don't we? I'm very thankful for the place that prayer holds in our church. But listen, this is an area that we need to excel still more. And probably now more than ever. In light of how divided the churches are, how scattered our precious flock is, in light of the condition of our society today, People desperately need Jesus, and we need to be praying as a church, praying for one another, praying for the lost, praying for our nation, praying, praying, praying. And sadly, this year, we lost probably two of our greatest prayer warriors as a church. Many of you knew Barbara Reich, lesser of you, but some of you knew Jeannie Monday. These were two dear, sweet women of God, and both of them are in heaven right now. They don't have to pray by faith. They get to see Jesus face to face. They get to enjoy a lifetime of faithful service and receiving and enjoying all the blessings of eternal life. They're there with Christ today. I think we're jealous probably more than anything right now. But God has left us here on this earth for a little while longer and We've lost some of our prayer warriors. The question is, who's going to pick up the baton from them and continue this on? And I know it's easy to sort of glamorize those people of prayer, men of prayer, women of prayer, apostles in the early church, and people like Jeannie and Barbara, but God wants you, and he wants me to be on his prayer team as well. One of the last times that I spoke with Jeannie, she'd already moved to Grand Junction, Colorado, she said, it's so hard here, pastor, to find good fellowship. I'm in this assisted living home almost all the time. Sometimes a chaplain will come in, but it's, it's hard to find many Christians. It's hard to get much teaching. I miss the church. Pastor, would you just keep me on your membership role? Would you just keep me on your membership role as, as long as I'm still alive? Because I want to still feel a part of your church. And then she said this. She said, I pray for you several times every week. Amen. Even after she had moved on. 
She missed this church, and she prayed for many of us by name. She was a woman of prayer, an inspiration to all of us. But even though their legacy has passed on, the question is, are we going to continue to devote ourselves to prayer? Well, corporate prayer imitates the example of the early church. And in this area, friends, we need to do the same. But there's a second benefit for why we need to practice and be devoted to corporate prayer. And that is that corporate prayer empowers all of our other ministries. Corporate prayer empowers all of our other ministries. We often like to think of prayer as maybe a preface to ministry. It's like stretching out your muscles on the sidelines before you go into the athletic competition. It's like warming up down in the orchestra pit before the concert actually begins. Many of us, we offer up an obligatory prayer before we eat our meal or uh, as our worship service begins because that's what good Christians are supposed to do, right? But prayer is much more than that. In many ways, prayer is not just what we do before the ministry. Prayer is the ministry. Prayer is one of the, not the only, but it is one of the most important things that we as a local church, can and should be doing. When Luke describes early church life, he says they're devoted to four things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. That's at least 25% of the church's ministry. If you just split it up, it seems to be of tremendous importance. Prayer is much more than just a preface to ministry. It is the most important thing we do, and certainly we cannot expect anything else of eternal significance to happen within our ministry unless it is bathed in prayer. Oswald Chambers says, Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Over in Mark chapter 9, we have a story of a man bringing his son to Jesus. Jesus is teaching one day. This man comes desperate for help. And he says to Jesus, my son has a spirit that makes him mute. This is no ordinary spirit. This is a demonic force that has prevented this little boy from being able to speak with his mouth. He's, he's only able to groan. It says that it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, he grinds his teeth, he becomes stiff and rigid. And, and so this man had already pleaded to the disciples, can you please heal my son? Can you please make him well? Cast out this evil spirit. And it says they were unable. They could not cast out the demon that was inside of the boy. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, Jesus commanded the spirit to come out, this mute and deaf spirit, and never enter him again, Jesus said. And the boy flopped down on the ground and came out and it says that he was like a corpse so that most of them thought he was dead. Jesus took that little boy by the hand and lifted him up and said, rise up. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we do what you did, Jesus? We tried. We tried so hard multiple times. Why couldn't we cast out this evil spirit? I mean, after all, the power in us is stronger than the power in that little boy, right? And Jesus said, this kind only come out through fasting and prayer. You see, there are many aspects of ministry that depend upon prayer. And if we attempt to do them in our own strength, we will find that our efforts are impotent. What would God choose to accomplish 
through our little church if we committed ourselves to more corporate prayer. I wonder what neighbor might come with you to church. I wonder what wayward child might repent and come back to the Lord. I wonder what volunteers might step up for ministry. I wonder what unreached people group might have the gospel in their own language and have the opportunity to trust in Christ. I wonder what greater harvest of fruit might come in our ministries. You see, we, like Moses, need to be propped up in prayer. We have a story in the Old Testament of Joshua going out into battle, and in this particular battle, a very unique thing happened. God said the only way that he is going to have victory is if Moses' arms stay up in the air the whole time, kind of reaching over, praying blessing upon. Now that sounds really good for about 30 seconds. And after that, Moses is realizing this is not going to go well. And his arms begin to sag under the weight. He can't keep them up. And and they fall down. And as soon as his arms fall down, it says that Joshua and all of those that were in battle begin to lose the battle. And he he groans and he puts his arms back up again. And then Joshua and the the armies of Israel, they begin to win the battle again. And then his arms get tired and they droop back down. And so Aaron and another man named Hur have the idea, we're going to have to help Moses. You grab one arm. I'll grab the other arm, lift them up, prop them up so that the arms will stay raised and the armies of Israel can win the battle. They they help him through the battle. Friends, in the similar way, we depend upon the prayers of God's people in order for us to have any kind of success or victory. Have you ever heard of the Metropolitan Tabernacle? one of the largest buildings in 19th century London. It was built exclusively for people to gather and to hear the preaching of God's word. Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist preacher. He had been specially anointed by God. Every room that he preached to, it would be packed with people outside wanting to get in. And so they they built this massive auditorium that that could hold up to 20,000 people back in the 1900s. This is a huge, huge auditorium called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Spurgeon preached there from 1861 until closely before his death. And a visitor was on a tour with Charles Spurgeon one day, going through the corridors and the hallways and seeing this vast and impressive building. And Spurgeon said, would you like to see the powerhouse behind this ministry? And he said, oh, yes. I want to know what makes this ministry so powerful. And he took that man, Spurgeon took that man down to a lower room. It was the prayer room. And he said, it is here that we get our power. For while I am preaching upstairs, hundreds of my people are in this room praying. You see, friends, corporate prayer empowers other ministries. And one of the greatest blessings and encouragements that you can give your pastor and your elders and your deacons and your ministry leaders is to simply tell us, I'm praying for you. When you think about us, pray for us. Put us on your prayer list. Put our ministries on your prayer list because that is truly the powerhouse behind all good that takes place in this place. We've rejoiced and seen God do many good things, and I would say none of them would have been possible without God's people praying. Let me just encourage you to make prayer a more central component of your ministry. And as I, as I look out this morning, I see that people are involved in a number of different ministries in our church. Whatever your ministry is, 
I thank you for your service to Christ and to our church. But let me encourage you, make prayer an important component of that ministry. Money counters. Those of you who come to count the blessed gifts of God's people to support the Lord's work in this community and the church planters and the missionaries that are supported through our church ministry. When you, um, uh, when you money counters come and you count the funds in the church, why not start by just spending a moment and bowing your heads and praying God's blessing upon those gifts and that God would use them for his glory. Children's ministry workers so often we're, we're, we're rushing and we're scurrying. I've got to get my, my teacher's materials together. I've got to find that craft project. I, I've got to put the swings on the swing set and have everything ready to go for when the kids arrive. And that's all great and wonderful. But, but why not maybe show up five minutes earlier and just say, let's cut, spend a couple minutes and just pray for this morning and pray for these precious little children, God's flock, his sheep. Whatever your ministry is, why not make prayer a more essential component because apart from Christ, we can do how much? Not very much. No, we can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. It might seem awkward at first to just stop and pray. But can I ask you? Can I encourage you? Can I plead with you to make prayer a priority for whatever your ministry might be in the church? God wants his people to pray. Prayer is central in the early church. It's meant to be central in our churches today. Prayer is what gives strength to all of our other ministries. And if we desire to see any kind of success, we should want to pray even more as a church. Let me just close by giving you a couple of practical applications for what this should mean for us as a local church body. First of all, let me encourage you, plan to attend our prayer meetings. Plan to attend. Carve out time in your week, in your routine, to be at the prayer meetings of the church. Now, we've done these in different times, in different ways, but recently I met with our elders and our deacons, and I said to them, what can we do to make prayer a priority? And if I'm going to ask the congregation to be at these prayer times, I really need the leaders to be at these prayer times, right? It's hard to ask the members to be at something or, or visitors to be at something if even the leaders aren't willing to be at it. So what would be a convenient time or the least inconvenient time, if you will, but what would be a time where we can gather and pray? And we decided that at least for this season of our life in ministry, we would like to devote a season of prayer on a Sunday night once a month. On a Sunday night once a month to just gather as a church and pray Pray for one another. Pray for our community. Pray for our missionaries. Pray for our church planters. Pray for our partner churches. Pray for the spread of the gospel. Just to pray for a little while and to ask God to work and to bless. And so our, our first one, as we try this out, is going to be on Sunday, November 1st at 4 p.m. in the afternoon. That's two days before the election. You think we have reason to pray? <laughs> We've got reason to pray any time. But can we gather and pray for our nation and for our church and for one another? Just plan to attend the prayer meetings. You say, well, I've got young children. Feel free to bring those young children. 
And if this takes off and we need to have child care available, we'll work something out. It's, it's hard to ask for volunteers when we don't even have it going yet. But if we have young children coming and we realize it would be helpful to have something to keep them occupied while we quietly pray, then fine. But if we have to pray loudly, if we have to pray noisily, God is glorified by that too. We just want to gather and pray together. If one parent has to stay home because a child's sick or one of them's too young and they just can't stay through the service, that's fine. But let's just make corporate prayer a higher priority. And not to make it one amongst 20 options in the church ministry that I may or may not participate in. Sunday morning is really the apex. It's the pinnacle of what we do as a local church. And along with that, alongside of that, I just want to see corporate prayer to be such a higher priority. So plan to attend our corporate prayer meetings. We want to be realistic. We don't want to, uh, we're not going to turn it into a five-hour prayer meeting unless the Holy Spirit leads us to do that. But we just want to gather for a while and pray for one another. Secondly, I want to challenge you, particularly who are worship leaders, those of you who are elders, which would be myself and Jerry at the present moment, those of you who come up and you read scripture, often we invite you to lead in prayer uh, as you also read scripture. Those of you who are Bible study teachers, let me challenge you to be more intentional and more thoughtful about the time that you put into prayer. Maybe writing that prayer out ahead of time. Or at least jotting down a few thoughts in an outline to make sure that our prayers are well-balanced. You say, well, what is a well-balanced prayer? I would say, go and look at the instructions when Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer. He says, pray in this way. Is there some adoration and praising of the nature and the attributes and the character of God? Is there some confession of sin? Is there some thanksgiving for God's goodness and his provision? Is there praying for the needs that exist in the body? Sometimes we even summarize that with the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. You can use that as a basic skeleton, a basic framework for prayer. And when we are called and invited to lead God's people in prayer, we shouldn't just go into it flippantly, having not even thought about it for five seconds before we get up to the, the podium. It's something that we want to pray ahead of time about how we're going to pray. Think ahead of time about what we're going to say. I don't expect you to come up and be eloquent in your prayers. You might stumble some. You might fumble some. You might not have it all together. That's okay. God is glorified by the prayers of his people. I just want to challenge us as worship leaders that we have to set the example and the tone for how God wants us to lead his people in prayer. Earlier this spring, I set up on our church website uh, a number of articles on some of the priorities of a local church. And one of those pages, you can go to our, our website and if you go up to the tab um, on, I think it's called Mission, Our Mission. It'll talk about corporate worship. It will talk about reaching the lost. And the third one is organized prayer. And in that webpage, this is a page within our church website, I've provided a number of links and articles about how we can grow in leading our people in prayer in corporate worship. You probably didn't even know that page existed. That's why I'm telling you right now. But on that page, on our church website, you'll find several articles like these. One of them is Four Methods to Organize Your Prayer Life by Tim Challies. Another one is called Looking to the New Testament for Models of Corporate Prayer by Andy Davis. And then there's another article by Ligon Duncan called 32 Principles for Public Prayer. I set that up there partly to equip our worship leaders 
and to have a portal I can point people to say, hey, I'd love to have you read scripture. I'd love to have you pray for the church. Would you lead in this element of our worship service? Here's an article you can go read to prepare you as you have this privilege of being able to lead the church in worship this morning. So worship leaders, let us be intentional as we lead our people in organized prayer. And then thirdly, I would just say to all of us, seek to stay engaged in prayer. I think that prayer is the primary battlefield of spiritual warfare. And there is nothing that causes me to more quickly get distracted than when I start trying to pray. It's like the moment you say, dear Lord, or somebody else starts praying, your mind starts to wander. What are we having for lunch today? Uh, What's our plans this afternoon? Oh, I've got that person I've got to follow up with and call this week. And all of a sudden, ten other things get in the way. Why is it so hard to have a conversation with God? Because we have the flesh that is trying to prevent us from fellowshipping with our Creator. We have Satan that is shooting his fiery darts at us, seeking to pull us away from communion with our Lord. We have the world that is trying to gravitationally pull us away from the Lord and entice it with all that it has, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. We have these enemies that are seeking to prevent us and roadblock us from prayer. Prayer is a battlefield. So my challenge to all of us would be seek to be engaged. Try to be more attentive. And when you notice 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes have gone by, and you have been anywhere but in the prayer moments, just pray a quick ask of forgiveness. Lord, forgive me. My mind has wandered off. Help me to get engaged back in what's going on here. Ask the Lord to help you to focus. Be well-rested. Drink a cup of coffee. That could be a very spiritual thing if it helps you to pray better. Just think of ways intentionally that you can be more engaged in prayer. What I found, and this is something that I've learned from people in our very church, is just to pray along with the person praying. It doesn't mean my mind doesn't water, wander. But uh, if, I, if I pray along with them, if I'm sort of echoing their thoughts and their words in my heart, and from time to time, when it's appropriate, not in a distracting way, but from time to time, amen. Yes, Lord. Praise you, God. Thank you, Lord. I don't want to get them off track. I don't want to you know, compete with what's being said, but I just want to add my amen. So be it. Let it be so. That's biblical, friends. It is biblical to say an amen from time to time in a way that's appropriate, not that takes away from what's being said, but we should be willing in a prayer meeting to have an occasional amen. Praise God. Yes, Lord. Hallelujah. So we're praying together and we're staying engaged. And don't just throw a random amen in, you know, five minutes into the prayer and you don't even know what was just said. Amen means, yes, I heard what was said. I agree in my heart. I echo that same prayer. Oh, that the Lord would help us to grow in prayer. We've come a long way, friends. We have a long way to go. I want to inspire you. I want to encourage you. I want this church to be a house of prayer. Thanks for listening to this week's broadcast of Feed My Sheep, a ministry of Crossview Bible Church in Yucca Valley. For more information, please visit www.crossviewyucca.org. We'd love to have you come and visit us this Sunday. We're located on Onaga Trail, just a half mile west of Yucca Valley High School. God bless and have a great week.